0: Good to be here with you. I'd ask you to pray for me in this coming week on Tuesday morning. I'm flying out to Omaha, Nebraska. I'll we'll be with uh, 48 pastors. Uh, we'll, we'll, I'll be one of the instructors in a workshop on biblical exposition where we're working at being stronger biblical expositors. So pray that God would use me and that also be a time of learning and refreshment for me and for those men who will be gathered there. If you would, uh, take your Bibles and open to Matthew 27. I'll be reading verses 15 through 44. If you're using the Bible in your pew rack, this can be found on page 834. Page 834. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew twenty seven fifteen to 44. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, They stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. You can be seated. Let's pray. God, strike us to our deepest part with the reality of what we've just read. By your Spirit. Amen. The worst form of death. That's how the first century Jewish historian Josephus described crucifixion. Seneca, a Roman contemporary of Jesus' said of crucifixion, can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his life drop by drop. Even by those ancient standards, crucifixion was barbarian. A century prior to Jesus' death, one of the leading Roman ethicists and politicians, Cicero, was condemning it, calling for it to be done away with because he said, quote, it is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. By most accounts, any mass way of exercising capital punishment, if you look at all the main ones, crucifixion was the worst. And by far, the most famous person ever to die by crucifixion was Jesus of Nazareth. It's an undeniable fact. All historians attest to that. And we read it today. It's gripping. It's terrible. But the question is, given those facts that Jesus died this terrible death, how do we understand that? What does it mean how do we make sense of Jesus' horrible crucifixion? And I think paying close attention to Matthew's account, which God inspired, will help us understand the meaning behind this terrible, horrible death Jesus experienced. So I want to look at what Matthew emphasizes for us. And in verses 15 through 25, you may have noticed he emphasizes Jesus' Innocence. So we pick up the story with Pilate already convinced of Jesus' innocence. We saw that in verse 18, right? It says he knew it was out of envy that they had brought Jesus forward. And so Pilate is thinking, okay, how can I, how can I handle the situation? And he comes up with this brilliant idea. You see, at the Passover, it was his custom to release one prisoner back to the people, to pardon him. And so he has in his jail uh, likely three people who have been part of an insurrection. The word here is robber, and so uh, these are people. Though, if you if you look at kind of what that word robber means in the Greek, the, what, what, like there's a connotation there—not just hey, I need some money, but but being part of an attempt to overthrow the existing powers. So they would steal, they would kill, they would do acts of terror, they could do. They would do everything they could to kind of upset the social order. That's, that's the word robbers there, here for Barabbas and later for the other two. So likely these, these men were in cahoots together. They had done something terrible. He was a notorious criminal, we're told, well known for what he was doing. And so Pilate's got the idea. I'll give them a choice between Barabbas, the terrorist, the insurrectionist, and Jesus, the Christ. I know what the crowd will choose. He's further motivated to take this step, to lay this before the crowd, because even as he's sitting in his judgment seat, rendering his verdict here, an urgent message comes from his wife. You see, she had had a dream. We don't know if it was God who gave her this dream or just a a stricken conscience, but she knows this is a man who is righteous. And as she sees what could happen, she is tormented by her dream. So tormented that she's willing to interrupt her husband when he's exercising his judicial responsibility as a Roman governor to say have nothing to do with him. Pilate understands very clearly he is innocent. And so he comes to the crowd and he says, Who do you want? Barabbas? Or Jesus, who's called the Christ. He knows what the crowd's going to say. They're not going to want Barabbas getting off scot-free. They're going to choose Jesus. But he underestimates the reach of the Jewish leaders. And this crowd who's already kind of, uh, they're in the middle of their holy days and so they're kind of pitched to a religious fervor. They're hearing these charges from their leaders that this man is blaspheming God and they hear what they're saying and they get whipped into a frenzy and they call out, we'll take Barabbas! Well, he says, what do you want me to do with, with Jesus who's called the Christ? And they yell out, crucify Him! You know, where the three crucifixions that were supposed to take place, these two robbers, and likely Barabbas, right? So, Barabbas gets pardoned. And Jesus goes and takes his spot on the cross. In, a, I think, a bit of beautiful foreshadowing, he hangs where the leader of the insurrection should have hanged. Barabbas... Barabbas, sorry, is pardoned, and Jesus takes his punishment. A little hint of what he was ultimately doing on that cross. And interestingly, Jesus was denied pardon and went to the cross so that he could pardon us but I'm just getting caught up in some of the beauty of what Matthew's doing here. The point here, they release Barabbas. He says, what do you want me to do with them? They call out crucify him. And then, what does he call out? Why? What evil has he done? And that question hangs out in the air as Matthew tells the story. There is no answer given to it. Because there can be no answer. Jesus is innocent. Innocent of all charges. He has done no evil. The crowd's only response is to call out further, let him be crucified. Pilate knows the man's innocent. And it's been his, it's his responsibility. The Roman government has entrusted with him the exercising of justice within this region he knows the man's innocent it's on his shoulders what is he to do is he going to stand with justice or is he going to allow a crowd of of impassioned jealous people to put an innocent man to the most terrible kind of death the romans could do in an act of supreme cowardice and abdication he washes his hands and says I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And even as that hand washing reveals his cowardice and in a sense is a testament to his own culpability, it's also another clear indication that he sees Jesus as innocent. Now the people accept Pilate's abdication and they say, okay, the blood of Jesus be upon us and upon our children. A word they would likely regret some 40 years later when they and their children died a horrible death when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. But the point in all of this The main emphasis that Matthew's drawing us to is that Jesus of Nazareth was an innocent man and He stands to be condemned. Verse 18, He's innocent. This is all about envy. Verse 19, He is innocent. The dream tells us that. Verse 23, He's innocent. What evil has He done? And verse 24, He's innocent. I wash my hands of His blood. If verses 15 through 25 emphasize his innocence, verses 26 to 44 emphasize his agony. The first thing we learn in verse 25 is that he was scourged. Now, the first readers would have known what that meant. There was a a Roman whip that had many leather straps attached to it. At the end of these, each of these straps was a rock or a piece of metal that was particularly designed to win your whip, to tear out chunks of flesh from your back. And so Jesus... Whoosh, whoosh. Now, there are other accounts of other people being scourged where their bones were laid bare by the scourging, where you could see their entrails... Because of the scourging. That's how deep the cutting was. That's how brutal it was. Matthew tells us. He was scourged. And then led away to be crucified. But. Even as innocent Jesus was scourged. They weren't just going to take him to be crucified. They take him in to the governor's headquarters and their, their goal, they gather a whole battalion, likely 600 men, to make a mockery of this person. You know, in torture, you don't just bring physical pain upon somebody. You put them under great emotional duress as well. And that's what they were doing. This was utter humiliation. He was likely stripped completely naked. Maybe a loincloth remained. And then they begin the mockery. They wrap a scarlet robe around him. And they say, oh, he's a king, eh? Let's make fun of him for that. So they get a, a, a crown that, is, that has got these sharp thorns. And they crush it down onto his head. And then they give him a reed in his hand and they kneel down in mockery. 600 men laughing at you, ridiculing all your life has stood for, spitting at you, and then they take the reed and they hit him over the head with it, driving those thorns into his brow. This is what he endures. And when they've had their fun, when they've mocked him to the nth degree, they take the robe back off but not the crown. Put his clothes back on and they lead him to death row or the place of the skull as it was known in those days because it's where the crucifixions took place. Now it was customary for the one to be crucified to carry his own cross section, the cross beam on his back. It's likely that Jesus had been whipped or scourged so badly he could not carry the weight of it on his own. And it was not uncommon as they had him do here. Simon of Cyrene's enlisted to carry it because Jesus is so brutalized as he's standing there with with the deep cuts into his back and shoulders with the blood dripping down his face emotionally exhausted by the abandonment he's gone through from his friends and then the intense mockery. He walks to the cross. And then, Jesus, so weary, probably his, his tongue dry with thirst, is offered one bit of refreshment. A bit of wine for His lips. You can imagine the su- saliva glands kicking in as his tongue reaches out to just get a little bit of relief only to find, Ha! We got you, Jesus! Mixed with gall! Ha! Further mockery. And so then, his hands are secured to the crossbeams with nails this time. And he's lifted up just a few feet off the ground Crossbeam secured to the main beam, the post. His nails driven into his feet to secure him to the post. Matthew doesn't get into a lot of the details of how crucifixion would have taken place because it would have been known in those days. But the way it works, as he's hung like this, he can't breathe. He's hanging by his arm. And in order to be able to get a breath, he has to use the remaining strength he has, his weary, battered body, pulling it up, scraping his back against that post as the wounds sting, against the nails, gasp for a breath, and then back down. This is how you die by crucifixion. And then... He does it again and again. <gasps> and down. Fighting all the pain. And then the mockery starts. First from the soldier, soldiers who have their poke at him and I think a poke at the Jews as well with the sign that they put over his head. You would normally put a sign, it's an innocent man. What are we supposed to do? I know, let's say this is the king of the Jews. So they put this sign over his head. They are mocking him. Then, the crowd of onlookers, the peoples passing by, toss up their insults too. Then the religious leaders get together and start hurling their insults at Him. And then, even the robbers, initially both of the robbers on either side of Him, begin mocking Him. It's like Matthew wants us to know how all-encompassing the mockery was. Who was it that mocked Jesus on the cross? Well, it was the Romans. It was the common Jews. It was the religious leaders. It was the hardened criminals. Perhaps in telling it like this, Matthew intends for us to hear our own voice crying out against Him with the scoffers. Agony. What agony unimaginable pain. This was ancient torture at its worst. And so Matthew's laid it out for us. Innocence. Agony. These two cruelly juxtaposed and juxtaposed, put together side by side in a way that's intended to beg the question why? Why was Jesus, the good teacher, the miracle worker, subjected to this? Why was innocent Jesus subjected to such agony? Why? But Matthew has already started to give us the answer in the very way he tells the story. It is so brilliant, so beautiful how the Holy Spirit prompted Matthew to put this story together. In a way that answers for us, or at least begins to answer for us, the question raised by the juxtaposition of agony and innocence. Did you notice, as we read, that Matthew's description of Jesus' agony is heavily stilted towards the mockery? I haven't seen Mel Gibson's The Passion, but I understand that it's heavily tilted towards the physical pain. But in the biblical account, Matthew draws us into the mockery. And it's not just any mockery that Matthew brings our attention to, but mockery over Jesus' identity as the Christ, the King, the Son of God. The soldiers dress him up as a pseudo-king and say, Hail, King of the Jews! The sign over his head says, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The crowd say, If you are the Son of God, come down. The religious leaders say, He is the king of Israel. Let him come down and we'll believe in him. Or they say, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Mockery for who he is. Now, I want to say this carefully, but this is actually the right way to mock Jesus, in a sense. Because kings don't do crucifixion. Now they might get killed heroically in battle. But what Jesus is doing right now, hanging quietly, meekly, on a Roman torture instrument, is simply not something that a king would do. And you look at what is transpiring... And you look at Jesus' claims that He was ushering in God's kingdom and He was God's Son. And His claims look patently ridiculous. If you claim to be God's Son bringing in God's kingdom and you lie dying on a cross in agony with not even a word to say against your accusers like this, at least ostensibly, you deserve to be mocked. Your claims don't hold water. But Matthew doesn't highlight these mocking words simply because they were, in the moment, apropos. He highlights them because, in the grander narrative, they're actually beautifully and wonderfully ironic. And for those who know the story Matthew is telling, and you hear these words that are said that, that Matthew highlights for us, you begin to understand the meaning, the true meaning, and the irony of their words. In the Bible, it talks about God's kingdom, it starts talking about it all the way in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And as Israel goes through their days in the Old Testament, there's this promise of, of a coming perfect full kingdom. In the New Testament, Jesus comes. He announces the coming of the kingdom. And all the way up until Revelation, it's pointing forward to God's kingdom. God's kingdom is, is, is a primary focus of the scriptures. And if you look into the scriptures, what does God's kingdom consist of? Well, it's void of two things. Two things that make the kingdom of man entirely horrible and miserable. It's void of sin, and it's void of death. And so if if Jesus is going to bring God's kingdom to us, He's got to deal with the two things that are tyrants over us, that rule over us. And that is sin and death. And so, God's Son has to become a man, live a sinless life, and then, because He was sinless, He could take our penalty upon Himself, and He could absorb God's wrath towards sin upon Himself, which He does on the cross. But in order to prove that justice has been met, that the penalty has been paid, he also has to conquer death. And so for Jesus to usher in the kind of kingdom, God's kingdom that He's bringing in, for Him to be the King and the Son of God... He must be dying in agony like this. He must be on the cross. In fact, Jesus is dying heroically on the battlefield as a king should. But it's not a political battlefield. It's not a battlefield over physical land. It is the battlefield for our soul. It is the battlefield against sin and death. And Jesus, right there as He hangs writhing on the cross, is not winning a political victory. He is winning the ultimate and most profound victory that matters for each of us. So while they mock, King of the Jews, King of the Jews, King of Israel, they are proclaiming a truth so deep and profound that it changed the course of history. Brothers and sisters, when you look on the cross, and you see Jesus writhing like we talked about, in agony like we talked about, we say, here is our King. Matthew laces his story with this emphasis. Here is our King. Here is our King. That is the King that we have, that we serve, that we follow. A King suffering in agony like that. Let me say when we look on a suffering like that, we may not take our sin lightly. If God's Son had to endure that because of my sin, do we regard sin lightly? And further, when we look on Him like that, we remember in the brokenness of Of this world that we experience, our Savior experienced it at even greater depths because He was taking on the brokenness of this world so that He could conquer it for us. So when you regard your King, you regard one struggling in agony on the cross. But that's not all the irony. King Jesus, King Jesus. Look at verse 40. They talk about the temple. The temple, which the Old Testament, when Solomon built this temple, or even the tabernacle before that, it it was designed to be a symbol. A signpost pointing forward to something. It was a symbol that a holy God could dwell with a sinful people. And so in the tabernacle system, in the temple system, there was a continual flow of blood, gallons and gallons of blood every every day from the altar because in order for us sinful people to have any sort of relationship with this God, atonement must be made, our sin must be paid for, and so God sets up this system that's a signpost, it's a temple that says God can dwell with His people, but He dwells with them through sacrifice. And so Jesus comes along the one to whom the signpost pointed, and he makes a sacrifice that ends all the temple sacrifices. He is the the last sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. His blood makes the ultimate atonement and allows for a holy God to dwell with the sinful people in him. Oh, You said you'd destroy the temple, and then you'd raise it up in three days. Ha ha ha! Fool! But the irony is this is where he is becoming that temple and rendering the old temple obsolete and making his own sacrifice so that we, through his blood, could be reconciled to God. It's not just the king, it's not just the temple. But look at the priest's words in verse 42. They say, he saved others. He cannot save himself. You probably can already see the irony in that statement. Because if he had saved himself in that moment, which he easily could have done, he would not have been able to save others. It was because he was willing to save us That he did not save himself. So while it's not accurate to say he cannot save himself, in a sense they're offering a prophetic word. He saved others because he didn't save himself. Do you see what Matthew does so brilliantly? Innocence and agony. so clear, innocent, and yet the agony of the cross, which is begging the question, why? And then using the mocker's own words, he points to exactly why. Our king could only be our king by liberating us, and in order to liberate us, he has to break something much deeper then, political oppression, he has to deal with the crookedness of our own hearts. And so he hung, tortured on the cross. And he did it so that he could be your king. He did it so that he could be my king. He didn't save himself. So that he could save us. He allowed his blood to flow from his head and his hands and his torn back and his sides and his feet. So he could be the true temple where we could be reconciled with God despite our sin. He who should have been pardoned died in our stead so that He could pardon us. And so we, like Barabbas, sit and watch Jesus suffering in a sense on the very cross that should have been ours. May this portrait that Matthew has painted for us. Capture our hearts and our minds. Maple Avenue, look on Jesus on the cross and behold your King. Doesn't make any sense from a world's perspective. This is not what a king does. But it's because Jesus was doing a different kind of king. Or he was a different kind of king. And the kingdom he's bringing is a different kind of kingdom. You want to make sense of the cross, the events that all historians acknowledge? You want to make sense of it? God makes sense of it. Behold your king. Behold your Savior. Let's pray. Father, I, I want each one of us, my own heart, every one of us to leave here captured by our King. Move deeply as we should be by what Jesus has done. For us. So that we sinners could be forgiven. So that sinners could be reconciled to God, to you. So as we sit here, silently for a moment, stir our hearts as we sing about this Christ who is the sole basis of our hope, stir our hearts. Grip us, Lord. May we see the Jesus that Matthew has shown us. in Christ's name amen please stand and join with us in response to the sermon let's sing in Christ